Gresham College presents Affairs of the Heart, an Exploration of the Symbolism of the Heart in Art by Professor Martin Elliott. Well, um, it is Valentine's Day. Um, welcome to the Museum of London again. Um, a day, as you've seen, for romance and flowers and, and chocolate and especially hearts. Um, my connection with the heart is well known. It's basically the theme of my lectures as a cardiac surgeon. And you can even see the heart beating in, in the grasshopper. Um, actually, for those of you who are biologists, you probably know that the grasshopper has more than one and they're lined up across the aorta rather like that. <laughs> now, it's, it is a, a huge treat as ever to be in, in front of the Gresham audience. I rather love the Gresham audience. Um, and uh, it's <clears throat> quite a painful experience, as you can probably tell. But uh, I'm, I'm very proud to be here, and I hope that you enjoy the rest of the evening. Now, the um, talk is about the symbolism of the heart. And um, symbolism is the use of symbols to signify ideas and qualities. The single beating heart that you saw is a, is a symbol, something we use to represent ideas, qualities, meanings that are, are different from the word in a literal sense. You instantly grasp the meanings of some of these symbols without the use of words. The symbols have evolved so that we have this instant and effective meaning, and that's what we're about to discuss this, this evening. Now, I'm uh, really delighted and honoured to share delivering this talk tonight with Dr. Valerie Shrimplin, who many of you may have seen at the front of these Gresham Lectures uh, on a regular basis, but um, Valerie is the registrar of Gresham College, and um, especially for me, it's a real treat because um, she is also uh, an art historian. And so I can have a bit of a rest for a large part of this talk um, while she can uh, talk to you about the symbolism from a, an art point of view. Now, um, I showed this slide a couple of times in this series of talks because I find it's quite extraordinary how wonderful the heart is. It does all of these things extremely well without you realising it. It's, it's on its own um, form and function, which is pretty perfect. But it's not just form and function of the heart which uh, fascinate. The heart has held a special place for us um, in human culture for thousands of years. And it's acquired this figurative importance as a seat of the soul, seat of emotion, the home of love, and indeed, in many respects, humanity itself. These philosophic concepts of the heart and its role have persisted over the millennia and are reflected in many of the phrases we see in, the, in current parlance and in the literature and everything that you see around Valentine's Day. Now, between us, we want to consider how this lump of meat, this muscular pump, with all of the amazing uh, and efficient functions it acquired, has changed into something which has a shape and metaphysical properties we come to associate with St. Valentine's Day, um, including some of the witty captions. Now, um, Valentine's Day itself, just to fill in some gaps before Valerie comes, has a little bit of an interesting history. Um, it probably started as an evolution of a Roman festival called Lupercalia, uh, named after the god Lupercus, Lupercus, who was the Roman equivalent of Pan in the Greek mythology. 
Now, he was the god of the shepherds, and his priests used to run around nude except for a, a goat skin. And around the Ides of February, a goat and a sheep were sacrificed, and salt meal cakes, uh, which were called mola salsa, were prepared by the Vestal Virgins, and those cakes were then burnt. Now, um, Plutarch wrote about Lupercalia, and he rather described it thus. Many of the noble youths and magistrates run up and down the city naked for sport and laughter, striking those they meet with shaggy thongs. Now, if I'd known that there was going to be a perspex stand here today, I could have worn my shaggy thong. Um, But fortunately for you, I I chose not to. Um, But it was also a time when, uh, uh, as a fertility festival, where you might... um, Women used to run around trying to get struck by the shaggy thongs in order to increase their chances of becoming pregnant. Even today, you can find Valentine's Day cards which recall this festival. Um, And you can find sculptures in many parts of the world where um, references to the festival have been made, like this one which comes from the Walker Art Gallery in Liverpool. Now, it may not have come from, um, may have come from the Romans, but it had this association with St. Valentine when uh, Pope Galicius uh, decided that he would get rid of the pagan festival and make it a Christian one and renamed it um, St. Valentine's Day. And in fact, he moved it from the 15th of February to the 14th. And um, the reason that it was the 14th was because the rumour at the time, there were three St. Valentines who'd been attributed to the origin of this, all of whom appear to have been martyred in various ways on the 14th of February, which is a good way to remember them. And, but it was 1969 when the Catholic Church disassociated itself and changed the liturgy, liturgical calendar uh, so that um, it was no longer a religious festival. Another argument was that it might have been um, from the Norman festival devoted to Galata, which means the lover of women, and obviously it could have been a corruption of that name too. Now, um, before I hand over uh, to Valerie, I I want to show you an image that I'm sure she's going to explain properly in a little more detail later on. Um, This is an Olmec object, which is over 3,500 years old. And, And yet, clearly it shows how little has changed in our history. Note the hairpiece... The small hands, (laughs) the orange skin, and wearing rather prominently his heart on his sleeve. And I don't know anybody who who looks like that. There's there's nothing nothing new in history. Um, But I'm I'm really um, honoured to uh, welcome Valerie to the stage. I hope you'll give her a good round of applause when she steps up. Um, And here you are, Valerie Shrimpton. Right. Well, thank you for that. And I, I'm really honoured to be sharing the platform with Martin here. Um, and I've been intrigued by this for many years. In fact, it was ever since um, the chance juxtaposition of a, actually my, my kid's biology textbook with the Valentine's Day copy of the Times that I wondered how we got from that to that. Because 
there's, a, there's this kind of a, a slight resemblance in the shape, but it's not really very, very overt or obvious. And so really what I aim to do now is looking at some pieces. It's rather sort of a chronological approach over time to focus on how the sort of curious, oddly shaped, asymmetric and bloody heart um, became transformed into the symbol that's so familiar today. So first I'd like you to bear in mind the idea of symbolism in general. And of course we have the symbol, this is worldwide, this is known all over the world, and show how symbols are important. The sort of symbolism that comes through in art, things like heart symbolism, light symbolism, dark symbolism, all this way that natural objects are used to symbolise greater things is very important. Another theme that I'll be touching on is the study of anatomy by artists, because, of course, this was quite dangerous and prohibited for much of history, um, which I'll talk about in more detail later on. So it, the heart is ext- extensively depicted, but it's not normally visible. People would have known what a skeleton looked like or a skull or something. Um, for various reasons, but this, the heart is the only internal organ that's commonly depicted even now. So <laughs> the thing is that you wouldn't have seen, you might have seen the hearts and internal organs of animals in butchers, and we probably all know what a chicken's heart looks like from, from dealing with the giblets and so on. But it, it was very unusual, and we wondered why um, this, you know, the two different things happened and why we've got the two different forms, the symbol and the actual object. So what I'm going to do is look through, looking at ancient Judeo-Christian, medieval, chivalry, the Renaissance and Victorian, and bring it up to the modern day. And as I do that, I'm going to base it on on a couple of themes, and one is sort of religious and spiritual ideas about heart symbolism and what the heart stands for. But also there's a sort of a chivalry, romantic side of things as well, which is particularly appropriate for today. So looking at the um, older example, which we've already had explained, it's interesting that this is, this is to about um, 1500 BC, and it does actually re- slightly resemble a heart, where you've got the, um, you know, the sort of tubes and the, the sort of chunkier shape of the heart. And alongside that, we can look at Egyptian hearts. Now if you look down here, this is where the heart is. And this is that symbolizes the soul at the end of life. The soul of the departed is being weighed against the feather of the goddess Mart in order to weigh out whether they'd had a good life or not and whether they would be judged according to the heart. Now, the, both the Aztecs, the, the um, Central Americans, um, because of sacrifices and things like that, they would have seen actual human hearts. The Egyptians used to embalm the heart separately, so they would have seen actual human hearts. But for the most part of Western European history, anatomical dissection of human beings was strictly prohibited. Another Egyptian example, again here we've got the weighing of the heart. It was quite commonly done and spoken about. And there is a detail, and you can see it does bear some resemblance to the naturalistic object. But also as symbolism, the heart by ancient Egyptians tend to be taken to symbolise the intellect or knowledge, not, not sort of love and desire and things that we think about now, or spiritual meanings, physical fortitude, moral courage, all these sort of things from the heart. 
But actually, it plays a, a crucial role in the Egyptian <coughs> creation myth because the god Ptah, who's shown here, um, actually, it says that the text says that he created the universe out of his heart. So it was a very important symbol, even then. Now, looking at Greece and Rome, the, Greece and Rome are actually the important source of, um, well, firstly, anatomy, because of um, physicians like Galen, and we'll touch on Vesalius and Harvey later on, but I don't really want to talk anything about medicine with a surgeon right next to me. But the, the point about the Greece and Rome is that this is where all these myths um, originate, Aphrodite and Eros, or the Roman equivalents of Venus and Cupid, which are very important for the foundation of the later concepts of romantic or spiritual love. And particularly in ancient Greece, there were two types of, of love. They were erotas and agapi. And erotas means the spiritual, um, romantic or physical love or desire, erotas. Whereas agapi is, is more and sort of inwardly spiritual, and that sort of develops into what I might call the more religious strand of interpretation of the heart. Now, this is an example. There aren't many examples that I've been able to find, and I'd love to hear from you if you know of ones from ancient Greece and Rome, but the earliest one I could find was an, an 11th century Byzantine example in Hagia Sophia in, in Constantinople. And there are heart symbols here, but I think that's coincidence. I don't think these are actually heart symbols. We see when and where and how it actually developed. Um, but it's interesting that the shape is being used here. This is a commemorative portrait of a, an emperor and empress. But the Greeks were um, well known for thinking that the descriptions of the hearts were sort of pine cone shaped. And that, as you can see, does bear more uh, closer resemblance to the, to the shape of the heart. I understand this isn't actually a human heart in, in this slide, so don't worry about that. Um, but that is, you know, you, you saw these, the slide of the pulsating heart earlier in the talk. And that, you can see, is, is a kind of pine cone shape. And that is actually the beginnings of the derivation of the modern symbol, as far as we know. So looking at... Um, Judeo-Christian tradition, we can find a lot of references in the Bible to the heart. Um, for example, here, the Lord sees not as a man sees. Man looks on the outward appearance, but the Lord looketh on the heart, showing that it's the inner person that is of interest to um, the Lord. In the Psalms, there are over 100 references, and you'll be glad to know that's not my next 100 slides. <laughs> Um, but things like references to a pure heart. Um, a nice one I picked out from Proverbs was, keep thy heart with all diligence, for out of it are the issues of life. Um, metaphorically and literally, I think back to cardiac surgery, you've got to look after your heart. And the last one is, we mustn't forget that um, although we've got blessed are the pure in heart and, and this sort of goodness of the heart, the heart can also be a place of evil, evil, evil-hearted, wicked-hearted. It's a sort of an emotional place all around. So looking now at how the actual symbol evolved, and I think the, the origins seem to stem from the early Renaissance, Giotto in the Arena Chapel in Padua, uh, in the very early 14th century, has a symbol of the heart here, and that actually seems to hark back to the 
Roman pinecone shape. And again, here it's, it's more the biblical idea of the heart as a symbol of emotion or, or love, or here it's caritas, charity, faith, hope, and charity, faith, hope, and love, we say nowadays. So this is the symbol of the heart, of the um, personification of charity offering to the Lord, or vice versa. It's a bit difficult to tell. But... Um, so this is, this is the way it's sort of coming out of this sort of pinecone shape to gradually take a more realistic appearance in um, Giotto's sort of proto-Renaissance idea. And the same applies to Andrea Pisano's heart. Again, it's the figure of charity, love and, and charity, on the south walls of the Florence Baptistry, slightly later than the Giotto, but... He's in, in the early 14th century where we do have the Renaissance beginning to take hold, looking at the classics again, getting, picking up classical ideas and integrating them with Christianity and Judeo-Christian thought, that we're getting this heart um, coming along. Now, later on, um, Giotto's church in the lower church, uh, his fresco in the lower church at San Francisco in Assisi in 1330. This is very unusual because we've got a religious theme here this is actually um, a, a, some, a symbolic scene of, of charity again. Um, but down here in the corner, you can see there is a figure of Cupid. We've got the classical figure of Cupid coming along. Um, and we have blind Cupid. This, so this is relating back to the classic, classical myths. But it's actually in a, in a Christian fresco, in a very important Christian church in some, San Francisco, in Assisi. And if we look at the details, you can see here that he's, it's, Cupid seems to have a row of hearts, as Panofsky put it, like a, a scalps on the belts of an Indian. But um, here you can see that the, it does seem to bear a resemblance to this sort of pointed pinecone shape. But you can just see that this the sort of curvature on the top is, um, is coming along, and so it's sort of combining the naturalistic and the symbolic at the same time. Another example from around this time is um, Barbarino's Documenti di Amore. Um, and here we've got blind Cupid. We've got this classical myth being portrayed in the Renaissance, um, complete with all the arrows, roses, and hearts. And if you look carefully, you can see that round, with, as well as the blind Cupid, round the neck of the horse, we've got this very distinct heart shape. This is really in the 14th century where the modern symbol is, is really beginning to take hold. Another interesting example, again, now moving on to the 15th century. This is going to be quite a, quite a, a romp through this because there's a lot to cover. Um, this is, a, again, a, a legend of the miser's heart from the Bible. So they open the miser and find that there is no heart and his heart is actually to be found here in his treasure chest. And this is interesting because uh, it's taking the, the religious context of the miser's heart, and he has no heart. But it was, it was made in Padua in the mid-15th century, just at the time that the medical schools were taking off in Padua in, Padua in particular, and that anatomical dissection of humans was legalised for the first time. So this is almost set up like a... Um, an anatomy class in a, in a medical school. And if we look at the heart here, if we look at it carefully, we can see that the heart, again, is definitely a distinctive heart shape. 
and fixed to the trachea or windpipe. So there's definitely the, the relationship between the artists. It's artists looking, it's, it's medical people, it's, it's the whole atmosphere of the Renaissance at the time. Some other examples from the 15th century are the, um, an example of, by Giovanni di Paolo, who's well known for his scientific influences on a lot of his paintings. A painting of St. Catherine of Siena exchanging her heart with Christ. Or a later example from northern Germany, where we've got here, instead of the five wounds of Christ, his hands and feet and his side being pierced, it becomes the heart. Um, so it's moved to the heart, and very definitely here by the end of the 15th century, we've got a really, real heart shape. But the other strand I mentioned, as well as this sort of re- these religious topics, we've also got to think about chivalry and crusades. And on the far side, we've got the tomb of Richard the Lionheart, who died in, in, um, in France, and his body is at Fontevraud Abbey in Anjou, but his heart was buried in Rouen Cathedral. The idea, a lot of the Crusaders, their hearts would be brought back to England or to their country of origin. And this is a, a shrine of um, Sir Roger de Leybourne in Kent, where the casket contains the heart. Um, another example from the same time is the chivalry and courtly love, um, which comes through in, in medieval manuscripts, later medieval manuscripts. And this as early as 1250, this is um, the first example of the young man offering his heart to his lady love, um, symbolize, actually really being used to symbolise romantic love. And this, like the Romain de la Rose, they were very popular at the time. And then we mustn't forget England and Chaucer, and Chaucer's Canterbury Tales from the late 14th century the idea that amor vincit omnia, love conquers all. So we have his description of the prioress. This is a a 15th century manuscript. But he describes, actually a little bit sarcastically, talking about the prioress, and she had her beads, and she had a a crowned A, an A being like the inverted shape of a heart, um, and amor vincit omnia. I think um, Chaucer kind of felt that the prioress really shouldn't be into this sort of thing. It was a bit unseemly. But I think that um, Chaucer was also credited with an emphasis on St. Valentine's Day itself in his book, The Parliament of Fowls. It was the day when the lovebirds chose their mate, today, presumably. Um, But I I think although Chaucer is quite often credited with an emphasis on Valentine's Day, he can't really be held responsible for all the boxes of chocolates and red roses that are around today. These are other examples that I've collected over the years. A heart-shaped bone pendant from Norwich Castle Museum. Some hearts carved. Um, I think these were in the Tower of London. But the one I, I like, this is from Malta. And you can see the idea of the heart as a talisman. And the two dents of the two musket balls. Obviously, the talisman worked and, and saved the life of the, um, the breastplate wearer. Now, this is a stunning example, which is in the British Museum, and it's from the largest hoard of coins that was ever found, the Fishpool Hoard. And because of the coins with it, it mutated fairly accurately to 1464. The hoard was probably buried um, during the Wars of the Roses, and um, I actually have a replica for of it on here, which is really nice. So um, it, is, it is exquisite. And, and again, you can see that 
whether it is in Italy or in Northern Europe, by, by the late 15th century, this is really um, taking hold. Now we have the a French manuscript around the same time where the, the lover offers the heart um, to the flower, which is a symbol of his mistress, um, probably with erotic connotations there. Um, or another example from a, from a French tapestry um, where there's the crowned heart in the middle at the top. And by now, you see, by 1500, it is, it is really a very recognised symbol. Even though, of course, at the same time as the Renaissance is coming on, there is more anatomical research, more, um, as I mentioned, Vesalius earlier on, there is a lot more going on. And people, actually, the people in the know know a lot more about what an actual heart looks like. But the symbol has, however, taken hold. Looking at the medical manuscripts, you can see an earlier example here. The, um, the heart is, is um, well, fairly, fairly accurately placed, I would imagine, but still a, a sort of a, an irregular shape. Whereas in this Aldebrand's medical treatise in 1356, which is surprisingly early, it's very, different, very definitely have it, has its heart shape. And of course, the drawings of Leonardo da Vinci are very important. Um, and I know Professor Elliott's going to talk a little bit more about that at the end. But the, I think this raises the questions of when does a scientific drawing become an artwork? What's the difference? Because these were not drawn as artworks, although we regard them as artworks nowadays. But the accuracy of these drawings, as will be explained, is really quite remarkable. Um, books of emblems became popular in the Renaissance. Here we've got our, our heart symbol. I think the artist was a bit confused because this is supposed to be the Prometheus um, myth, so it should really be his liver, but it, very definitely a heart shape, as with the emblem on the right, the book of emblems. And then in Northern Europe, this, this actually looks rather more like a modern Valentine card, showing the power of, um, of Venus, the power of love, and how it can break and destroy the hearts, which you can see are being pierced and, and cut and, and tortured in, in all sorts of different ways. And again, another. this is from the same codex as the earlier one that I showed you, where the heart becomes related to, to Christ very much so. So this goes back to the heart symbols of Christ. The Protestants took it up to Martin Luther's symbol here is interesting because there's the black cross symbolising death, and the red heart symbolising life and what the heart symbolises. In the centre, we have a portrait of a young man showing the heart as an open book, or Cranach's saints adoring Christ crucified, which again presents it in a heart. And not forgetting Shakespeare. This is um, Romeo, again, of course, did my heart not love till now. We've had chores, we have to have Shakespeare in him somewhere. But I think one of the nicest quotations is from Ophelia, because Ophelia sadly mentions tomorrow's Valentine's, and it can be very sad for some people. <laughs> um, moving on swiftly, Bernini's Ecstasy of St. Teresa. The um, arrow from Christ pierces her heart in, in her ecstasy, but it's the symbolism again, and linking up with the sort of the Cupid, the classical Cupid myth. Um, the, the spear thrusting into her heart and her entrails. And then typical examples where we've got moving into the, um, 
the sacred hearts and sort of this is interesting because we've got St Augustine on on the far left and a symbol of charity again in the middle and a very classical Venus and Cupid on the right and but you can see that the symbols are all in the same the same ilk all the same approach and then the Jesuits of course took the idea of the sacred heart the burning heart meaning fervor and desire. They took it round the world in their missionaries. And so we have a very interesting example from Mexico in 1770. And you can see here that the, um, you know, the tubes have all kind of reappeared. It's much more realistic. The artist is trying to, to show off that he, he really does know something about anatomy as well. And then we have Sacré-Cœur in Montmartre in Paris, which is one of the highlights of the um, Sacred Heart cult. And so this was really important in, in Paris long before it became a, a destination for romantic couples at Valentine's Day. That's just showing the, the symbol again. Um, just to quickly mention a few other cultures, although we haven't got time to go into those properly. The Aztecs, as I mentioned before, um, because of traditions of sacrifice, would have known what a heart looked like. It also appears in India... And, and more like the rather curiously shaped asymmetrical um, type. And also in China, that is the, the Chinese word for heart, which actually relates to um, the heart as it, in its sort of more naturalistic state, bearing more resemblance to the object. And then in the 19th century, <clears throat> we've got the, um, the pre-Raphaelites. You can see the, the necklet here and here with the heart symbol. And that comes into the beginning of modern day's Valentine's, these sort of lovely lacy Victorian examples of which many still remain. And then I just want to sort of swing quickly um, through some modern art. So we can see that very serious, um, very high-profile recognised artists are still using the heart symbol. Obviously, the um, anatomy has all been worked out by now. But people like Edward Munch, um, using the heart as a symbol in the very late 19th, cent 19th century. We have an example by Yuan Miro, relating it to dance, and showing how that the romantic sentimentality didn't prevent serious use of the symbols um, in, in works by artists like this. Matisse also used the heart as a symbol, this is clearly a heart on, on the right-hand side here, even though it's, it's, uh, it's painted more as a, as a blob rather than an actual, either the symbol or, or the anatomically correct, but it's clearly a heart. Frida Kahlo is a very interesting example here. This was actually painted um, following her divorce. She had, had her heart broken, as you can see here. Her heart is shattered, but her former self has an intact heart, and she tries by bringing the artery to mend her broken heart, but it doesn't work, as we can see here. So it's, a, it's quite a tragic painting. Um, David Hockney's approach, he's still using the heart, um, but it's very unsentimental, it's very non-traditional. And then moving into the, into the modern era, um, Roy Lichtenstein relating it more to modern, modern cultures um, dating from the 60s. 
or things like Peter Blake, but actually, although Peter Blake was, was active, Sergeant Pepper's Lonely Hearts Club Band cover, for example, in the 60s. But um, these are actually 21st century examples where the heart is still very much in, uh, in vogue. Now, I don't know if many of you remember this, um, this advertisement that was in 1996. Um, I, I included the slide over here because the car shows the sign of this, the size of this hoarding, and this um, advertisement used by Bennington was actually banned because it was considered racing, racist. Um, but actually, my view is that it's it's rather the opposite. That it says, you know, underneath we're all the same. I think the the other thing that was rather scandalous about it was that it wasn't made clear whether these were human hearts or not and how they'd been procured, but in fact they're pig's hearts. And pig's hearts are more pointy at the bottom. So I, I think that was I think it was it was a very interesting use of the symbol. Modern symbols, um, San Francisco has public art examples. And, of course, we mustn't forget all the emoticons that can be used nowadays, which goes back to the I heart whatever sign. Not forgetting Damien Hurst, um, this article, you can see how long ago I, I gathered it. Um, he, he, he had put together a sculpture which was sold for a large number, uh, a large sum of money, um, I think the person who wrote this article tend to think that it could be done much more cheaply. Um, and again, these are not human hearts, obviously. And that, actually, to look back at that, that, that is a detail of the Mexican heart that we looked at earlier. And this one, um, you can see I, I picked this up a long time ago, that this is a, a sort of a, an impression of what Damien Hirst might have produced for a Valentine card. So now looking at um, Valentine's Day and the time where it was when you were quite happy with a small bunch of flowers or a small box of chocolates or maybe a, a nice email or a letter from an old friend. But now it seems that, you know, a weekend in New York is, is par for the course. But of course, they're not forgetting, as I mentioned earlier, that sometimes it's, it's not so happy. These I took on the 3rd of January this year. The minute Christmas is over, out come the Valentines. Um, but what is interesting, if you look at this display, is that they are my son, my daddy, my friend. It's not, it's not just for the lover, for the spouse, for whatever. Um, but that's probably a marketing thing as well as a symbolist thing. The commercialism in the United States today, about 19... Oh, this was last year. $19.7 billion was spent. I think the equivalent for the UK was about £11 billion. And, of course, there are millions of, of roses and everything um, done all the time. But to get back to the medical arena, it's interesting. I find it very interesting that the symbol is now used, even though everybody, medical people especially, know perfectly well what a, what a, a real heart, human heart looks like. But the symbol is still used. This is a CPR and um, defibrillator training that actually all Gresham staff underwent following Martin's lecture last autumn on, on the heart. And um, it's, it struck me as very interesting that the heart symbol is used to teach people because it's instantly recognisable, instantly rememberable, and, and very important. So my last slide 
it's just, uh, this was um, taken, uh, a red arrows display, actually in Cow's Week one year. And I think the precision of how they managed to do that, let alone the guy coming in from the right at the top there, um, really just reinforces what I've been saying about the, the magnificence of the human heart and the importance of the symbol. So I'd like to hand back to Martin at this point. Thank you, Valerie. Um, we heard a little bit about Leonardo da Vinci before, and surgeons have a, a reputation for being concrete thinkers and largely stupid. Um, craftsmen and not artists, barbers and not scientists. In, in many cases, that may well be deserved, um, and, but by far the majority of the people I've worked with have recognised the beauty of the heart and usually its inherent artistic merit. And there's no doubt that the, the wonderful drawings of Leonardo have had an impact on many, many of us. Um, he really got the relationship between form and function much earlier, um, much better than his predecessors, and cemented this relationship between the internal anatomy and the art. The drawings are indeed beautiful, and I find it just as challenging to decide whether these are art or science, but they're accurate and very beautiful. In fact, they've um, driven many surgeons who are also artists um, and stimulated their work. This is uh, Frank Wells, who um, is a, a cardiac surgeon in Papworth, who is one of the world's best mitral valve repair surgeons. He's also a very accomplished artist. But he um, directly attributes some of the skills he's learned in repairing the mitral valve to those very early drawings of Leonardo, and he's written a very interesting book about it, which is available. Um, one of my uh, colleagues is a, a chap called Laszlo Karali, who is a, a professor of surgery from Budapest and now works in Abu Dhabi. And um, this is one of his pieces using that same symbol. Um, but he also points out that the heart is composed of various spirals. It spirals in its organization, it spirals in the way the vessels are attached to it, and the muscles themselves within the heart are organized in spirals, logarithmic spirals, similar to the ones you see in cloud formations in a nautilus shell or here at the apex of the left ventricle. They're a very beautiful organization within the microanatomy. These have been dissected out. This is some work by Bell Pettigrew from Glasgow in the last century, dissecting sheep's hearts. Again, showing this really beautiful organisation of spiral, spiral features. I think artistic in their own merit. Nowadays, we don't have to draw it. We can demonstrate it. These are taken from magnetic resonance images. I think, again, you're now seeing... We have this fantastic ability with modern technology to create artworks in our daily life which were not visible just a few years ago. These are spiral arrangements of the contractile elements of the ventricle. Leonardo also did experiments in fluid movement by putting grass seeds into the fluids and then drawing to see how the turbulence of the fluid around objects happened. That's what we do in the heart now. We use the Doppler principle to demonstrate turbulence, 
to create beautiful color images on a television screen, or in a magnetic resonance image scanner, we can create the same turbulent images from mathematical flow dynamics from the data within the MRI data set. But it's equally beautiful, I think. This is the flow within the right atrium of a heart. It's been captured on an MRI scan by uh, Professor Philip Kilner, who works at the Royal Brompton Hospital in a, a classic paper. It was he who um, managed to get himself both as a scientist onto the cover of nature and as an artist because he is also a sculptor um, who still is teaching um, the importance of flow in art, um, uh, uh, as you can see on this right-hand side. But more particularly, he made this fantastic sculpture which used to be uh, visible at the Royal Brompton Hospital. And uh, if you look carefully, you can see that at the top, the water is flowing into this sculpture in, as a continuous stream. Coming out of the bottom, it comes out as pulsatile flow. And that's because he um, noted the design of the inside of the heart of the atrium, modified it slightly. So the interference between the flow patterns between these two scalloped chambers results in uh, a pulsatile flow at the other end. It's a beautiful demonstration of the relationship between form and function. This is another MRI image created um, by the techniques I've just shown you. And I think to bring this talk to a conclusion, I'd like to say that if you put it in a frame, it acquires a different kind of appearance. And if you add a signature, you could quite easily attribute it, I think. Looks right somehow, doesn't it? Um, it's no wonder that the heart has been regarded as the seat of the soul. I think we are lucky in the modern era that now our daily lives present art to us in a way which uh, could, with a little manipulation, acquire symbolism. But the symbolism of um, St. Valentine's Day is fairly obvious, and I hope that you don't agree with this graffiti artist um, <laughs> that you've had a little bit of overkill of hearts this evening. Um, I, it is a great pleasure to talk to a Gresham audience. And um, before I stop, I just want to um, give some feedback on uh, my last lecture, which um, m I hope some of you were at, um, which was about sudden death in children, and to s feed you back with some thanks, because uh, it's already had some impact in trying to make changes in the way which uh, we can investigate that by working with the the epilepsy and the cardiac charities. So thank you for all your support. Um, Valerie and I would like to thank you very much for sitting through this, and uh, I hope you've learned something this evening. Thank you very much, and have a great evening. For more information, please go to www.gresham.ac.uk.